Well, we continue our exposition in the book of Hebrews. There is a target date of which I hope to complete it, and it's coming up. And then we'll probably be in the Old Testament, maybe looking at some wisdom literature uh, for our expositions uh, for a season. And um, so you can be, be in prayer about that. And then our long-term goal is actually to begin the Gospel of John. So maybe in the fall, something like that. And that will be in that book for a while, probably take a break halfway through and do some Old Testament, but uh, that's kind of where we're going. But Hebrews has just been a delight, and it has become the, my favorite book of the Bible, which used to be Romans, but uh, I, this book is so rich and so important to living the Christian life and understanding the covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and the implications for us as New Covenant Christians of course, the writer is writing to a Jewish first century church. He's been encouraging them to stay the course, to not drift away. And you have to remember, most theologians and scholars, I should say, think that the book was written around 66 AD. Persecution is just starting to heat up. The temple is still standing in Jerusalem, right? Titus will come in and destroy that in AD 70 to give a, a, a powerful visual aid to the Jewish people that the Old Covenant is done away with forever. And so the encouragement to not drift away, he gives his five warning sections in this book, and that we're, our text today, it will be taking up the fifth and last of that. And there's a tendency for these first century Jewish Christians to go back to the synagogue. They're calling out, why are you leaving Moses? They, they deny that Christ was the true Messiah. And... Today, our text describes this shaking or quaking, that God's going to shake things up, that not only the earth, but even in heaven will be shaken today. And I don't know if you were, felt the earthquake this morning. I had a very visual aid at 9.46 a.m., 4.3 uh, Richter scale in North County. We felt it. My wife came running out of the bathroom and into the front yard. Uh, lickety split, and uh, so it, it was a pretty, I mean, we felt it. It was close to us, obviously. So I like that when the Lord does that, to give a visual or a, you know, something like a confirming thing. Um, you might have noticed that in our world today, things are a little shaky. Look at the, the state of politics. Look at the wars and rumors of wars. What's going on in Ukraine and Russia? Things are, are shaky we can't put confidence in the things that we see. We can't put confidence in earthly governments or, or any president or a political party. We can't put our confidence in that because they will let us down. Those things are temporary. And at the end of the day, the security of your family cannot rest on a certain country or a certain political leader. Um, it must rest on the unshakable kingdom of God. To put it another way, our security is not in the temporal and the here and now, but rather in the eternal and that that abides forever. Only God's eternal heavenly kingdom will remain. And so the motivation now for us is to, we, we need to take these warnings seriously and we need to be reminded that the, the kindness of Christ and the new covenant promises as they come to us, does not mean that we take God's Word lightly, right? There's strong admonitions, there's strong encouragements for us, there's commands for us. 
And so rather what we need to do is we need to think of the, the great privilege that we have as children of the king to live up to our royal status. With, with greater privilege comes greater responsibility. And so we can't disregard these things. So if you haven't yet, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Our text today is 25 to 29, but I think it might be helpful to read the previous section. So I'm going to begin in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and to the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them. For they could not even bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it must be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses says, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they had refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this great privilege that we have to, as it were, come to your feet and to learn of you. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd remove distractions We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to give us insight and understanding into this text, that we would take the warning for what it is, and Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name, amen. Well, verses 18 to 24 uh, was our last sermon in this, and you had two mountains contrasted, that of Mount Sinai and then Mount Zion. Seven descriptive terms for each, it's really masterfully put together, uh, even in the original but it contrasts the heavenly with the earthly, the visible with the invisible, the imperfect with the perfect. Dreadful Sinai, that, that scene is, is just, it, it, what does it display? But God's perfect holiness. The, it, it, the takeaway of Mount Sinai is the unapproachability to approach God apart from a mediator. And then, of course, uh, you know, the... Uh, Mount Zion, the glorious, the glorious descriptions that are given there. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of a living God. That speaks of permanence. It speaks of it, it, it will not change. And we talked about how it's the idea we have come, that's perfect tense, 
something that's happened in the past, but ongoing results into the future. And that there's a sense in which we are already citizens, right? But then there's also a sense in which we are still waiting for the full consummation. So we are there, which sure, but we're waiting the consummation. Well, today we'll be learning about the importance of speaking and listening. You children, how often do your parents say, are you listening to me? Did you hear what I said about cleaning your room? <laughs> right? Those, those kinds of things. Or maybe you men can uh, relate to this. You're having a conversation with your wife after a long day. The conversation is going well. Your wife's telling you about her day. And she asks the question, are you listening to me? Have you ever have that? Am I the only one that's happened to? <laughs> are you listening to me? God wants us to listen and to hear That's a prominent theme throughout the entire Bible. And we read of it in John chapter 8. We'll come back to that. How many times does Jesus say, be careful how you hear? Or, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, there may be one in a million that has a deformity and is missing actual ears, but you get the point. Jesus is like, everyone has ears. Let him hear. All seven churches of Revelation, he says the same thing. He who has an ear, let him hear. You know, the ear is an amazing thing. Andy McIntosh, the um, creation scientist that we've had about four times at our church, has an hour lecture just on the human ear. It's fascinating. I did not go back and listen to that, but just a couple of things about the human ear They're actually completely individual, just like your fingerprints. Did you know that? Every single ear is slightly different. There's no identity. Every single ear is different. Of the 206 bones in the human body, the six smallest bones in your body are three on the right and three on the left inside of your ear. Together, each three are about the size of a pencil eraser. Does anybody use pencils anymore? (laughs) I think most at least know what that is, right? Eventually that'll become obsolete, I think. I mean, it's just fascinating. And this hearing organ uh, has 16,000 microscopic hair cells called a strixilia. And they discern the direction of a noise and where it's coming from in a microsecond. If, if If Florin left a hymnal up there and it was to fall down, I would know right where that sound is coming from, right? Isn't that fascinating? how God has made the human ear. Other than our vision, our eyesight, the primary organ that you have to maintain your balance is in the ear, the vestibular system, it's called. And these are three semicircular bony rings located on different levels which contain fluid that moves through them. It's fascinating. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him here. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, has said, every sermon that you hear will either set you closer to hell or closer to heaven. We will be accountable for the word that we hear. So today, we're going to look at this under three points. Verse 25, excuse me, I don't know what happened. My throat. Heed the strong warning and listen well. Secondly, Believers have an unshakable kingdom, and lastly, worship in reverence and awe. So first of all, verse 25, heed the strong warning. 
to listen well. The text actually says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The argument of the epistle is really been contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant, actually in the just previous section, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, right? Old covenant, new covenant. And, and he says here, and this is a command that, that's translated, see to it. It could be translated, watch out. It's a command. We need to see to it. We need to beware. And it's a command. And he already used it back in chapter 3 after talking about uh, the, the children of Israel, how they harden their hearts. Uh, take care, the NAS, that's see to it. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that what falls away from the living God. The author had used that Psalm 95 today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And then the conclusion now for the Jewish first century church is see to it that you don't fall away from the living God like the children of Israel did when they hardened their hearts. See to it that you do not refuse him. Who is him speaking of? This is speaking of God. And even this theme has been throughout this entire letter. The, very, the, second ver- or the first verse of the book says this, God, after he spoke, notice that, long ago to the fathers and in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken in his Son. Actually, back in Hebrews 3, before he gives the um, quotation of Psalm 95, he says, um, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like when they provoked me in the wilderness. This speaking, this hearing is a theme, isn't it? It's a theme. It's a theme. Even even just back about Mount Sinai, the, the blast of the trumpet, which was so loud, and the sound of words. You remember the people eventually said, you talk to us, Moses, but we don't want to hear his voice because they were so utterly terrified. Transfiguration, the inner circle, right? Go up to the mount. Uh, Jesus is transfigured before them. A voice comes out of heaven, out of a cloud, and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see how this is a theme throughout the the Holy Scriptures. Hearing, hearing is not necessarily a physical activity, according to the Bible, as much as a spiritual activity. Because hearing and hearing well is, is indicative of following God and knowing Him. Turn back to John chapter 8 for a moment. We didn't have time to read the entire section, but I would commend it to you. Verse 31 all the way to the end. But this is that discourse between the Pharisees and uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In just two verses, verse 43. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Jesus is asking them. Why do you not understand? And notice what it says. It is because you cannot hear my word. That word cannot is, is is speaking of ability. Their hearts were hardened, and until God enlightens the heart, it's just like the the man who's depraved and and a God-rejecter. He cannot believe until God breathes new life into him. But look at verse, verse 47. He who is of God 
hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. So that theme, hearing well, is an indication that you know God. See, the Israelites were horrible examples of this. When, when they heard God's voice, they, they hardened their heart. They, they went their own way. And God has now spoken to us in the, the most blessed way through Christ. Jesus, the mediator, the new covenant into sprinkled blood, who, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out for what? Judgment, right? He was slain. He was murdered. The blood of Christ communicates the idea of pardon and freedom and acceptance. That, that salvation and access to the holy place. And so you can see that, that the same root word is there, um, laleo, it's uh, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, but then just previously, which Christ's blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Charles Spurgeon says, see to it means they are to be very circumspect that they by no means, accidental or otherwise, that you refuse Christ, the Christ of God, who now in the gospel speaks to you. Be watchful, be earnest, lest even though inadvertently you should refuse the profit of the gospel dispensation, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which speaks in the gospel from heaven to the sons of men. The old covenant people of God continually rejected God, right? They were told not to have any idols, right? And what happened? <laughs> A golden calf. Moses goes up to, for 40 days with God, and, and the people cry out, where is this Moses? We don't know where he's at. We want a God. And they all contributed their gold. Aaron was complicit. He should have known better. And the golden calf is there. They rejected God. Actually, it's a theme throughout the Bible. Just Zechariah 7, verse 11. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. You see this? The prophets are prophesying to the people to put away idolatry, to come back and worship the one true God. That's the response. Or maybe with better clarity, Jeremiah 11. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. And the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing a disaster on them which they will not be able to escape, though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen. Strong warnings about this. And of course, we know that's the, the people in exile, along with the encouragement of God's grace, is the warning to those who refuse it. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking so clearly. It's a warning to us that maybe want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, that we kind of want to play on the fence and, 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 and it's a warning to us that when we try to do that, we will trip up and fall because we cannot serve two masters, Matthew 6. What act of obedience do you know the Lord is wanting you to do that you're refusing to do? 
What, what, what is it that you're, that you're putting off and procrastinating and you keep pushing further down the road that God wants you to do? See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking to your conscience oftentimes. Secondly, under this head, those who refused to listen did not escape judgment and neither will we. Look at the rest of the verse. For those who did not escape when they refused Him who warned them from earth much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. This, this, uh, they refused to listen. They did, not, they did not escape judgment, and neither will we. The four there kind of connects the two. The, the imperative, the command, the warning not to refuse. Here's the reason. Here's the reason. And who are those speaking of? For if those did not escape. It's talking about the Israelites, right? It's talking about the Israelites who came out of Egypt with Moses and were on Mount Sinai. This word escape means to um, avoid a presumed danger or difficulty. And then this idea of warned, him who warned them from earth, occurs two other times in the book of Hebrews. One is in Hebrews 8.5, when God warns Moses to construct the tabernacle according, exactly according to the pattern which he had given him, but also in 11.7, in the Hall of Faith, where what we learned about Noah, when, when God warned Noah, he's going to flood the earth. And so here, if those did not escape when they refused him who warned from earth, and then this argument from the lesser to the greater, much less shall we escape. We, we can't be deceived. They did not escape. And the fact that the new covenant proclaimed in Zion is more inviting and more soft and, and adorable, right? All these terms that are used of the living God, we have come here and all that, does not negate the warnings and the consequences for refusing to listen to Him. So neither will we escape if we turn away. The word turn away is the idea of a rejection, a turning away, to repudiate something. And so this argument from the lesser to the greater, if they didn't escape, don't think you're going to escape if you refuse Him who is speaking. Rather, the rejection of this better covenant will result in more terrible and inescapable consequences Remember back in chapter 2, the first warning section? How shall we escape? That's speaking of judgment. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We have received a better revelation from God. We're more responsible. How much more that argument's used throughout this um, book. In fact, back in chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, if anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Remember that? That was one of the warning sections as well. As well. How much more? So first of all, listen well, right? Pay attention. Secondly, verses 26 and 27, believers have an unshakable kingdom. This shaking on earth is, is 
only foreshadowed by future shaking that is coming, right? And it says in verse 26, and his voice shook the earth then. His voice refers to God and the voice at Mount Sinai that shook the earth. Remember, the, the mountain was quaking and the people were petrified. But since Calvary, it's, it's, he's speaking through his son. And then look at the rest of the verse. It says, but now he has promised. But now, transition, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. The, the word shake there is, is seizo. It's where we get seismograph. That's how immediately we were able to determine it was a 4.3 earthquake because of the seismograph, right, that, that we have. And, and, and that word, uh, it, it doesn't always mean earthquake, but it, it means to cause, to, uh, to be in a state of commotion and shaking and agitation, to cause to tremble, to shake, to move back and forth, especially in a violent manner. Matthew 27 and verse 51, it occurs when it says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. That's the word, the word shake there, the seismo there. During an earthquake that occurred many years ago, the inhabitants of a village were extremely scared and um, alarmed. And they were so surprised by the calmness of an old woman and, and that they all knew. And eventually, one of them asked the woman, aren't you afraid of the next aftershock? She answers, no. I rejoice to know I have a God who can shake the world. She had no fear because of her confidence in God who could rattle the world with his hand. One said it even with a touch. So there's, there's this future shaking, this universal earthquake As we see here in Hebrews, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This this great cataclysmic event Isaiah talks about. The earth will move out of her place, Isaiah 13 and verse 13. So this shaking, a violent shaking, earth and heaven, and Sinai is, is where he shook the earth then, Right in verse, uh, it says the mountain quaked, quaked violently. And Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away and the roar of the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now why does the writer allude to an obscure passage in the minor prophet Haggai? I, 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 it's, it's, it's amazing to me. He, he alludes to this, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Notice he leaves out the sea and the rest of the, the context. He's building an argument, but first of all, let's talk about the context of this oracle that came from the prophet. It was to give Zerubbabel, who was the governor, assurance that he sees and that he will be there. And also Joshua, the, the priest, um, as they would dedicate that second temple. This is after the exile. The people of, remember, um, the Solomon's temple was destroyed. The people went into exile. And now these are the returning exiles to rebuild the temple. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai and Zechariah are the books that we have during that time. <clears throat> and so the rebuilding of the temple, and it says in that text, 
I might just want to turn to it. That the temple paled in significance to the former temple. Remember the exiles, roughly 70 years, or some people that were maybe in their mid-80s that remembered the glory of that other temple. And as the other one's coming up, it says there, Who of you is left who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? Does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? So it was widely acknowledged. This is nothing like Solomon's temple, but it's a temple, and we want to worship God as as he has prescribed. And so there's two things this could be talking about. It could be talking about the second coming, but it could also be talking about the inauguration of the new covenant with the coming of Christ and his first coming. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, um, so also the heavens that you know that probably communicates everything that's visible in this world. I mean, you've got in Revelation that the stars of the sky will fall to the earth, and the, as the fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by the wind. That's seismo. That's that same word that's used there. And so, when God shakes the earth, all sin and corruption will be removed. And you think of Jesus Christ where it says that he holds all things uh, by the word of his power. Every galaxy, those stars that you look up to at night, the reason why they're not falling down on you or the moon. He holds all things together by the word of his power. And not only our solar system, not only our galaxy, but the billions of other galaxies that are out there. Even the chairs that you're sitting on. He's holding all things together. All the atoms of the world. And even He's sovereign over the devil. I'm I'm mindful of Martin Luther's hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. What? One little word will fell Him. One little word from God. Doomed! Well, secondly, Jesus brought his kingdom in the first century. You know, there's some that, that have this mindset that we're just waiting for the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus has said it again and again throughout the Gospels. Now, most commentators look at this text, verses 26 to 27. I'm presenting both. Most modern commentators look at that as the second coming of Christ. But there are a few older commentators that actually see this as referring to the new covenant coming on the scene. The whole argument of the book has been about the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant and this comparison that is being made. Even Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. So it is logical and plausible. there's There's a sense in which the whole book has been built on replacing the priesthood and the sacrifices and the types and the shadows with the new covenant and the coming of Christ as our great high priest. So are these verses talking about the second coming or a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant? I'll present both sides to you and you make your decision. Surely both the second coming of Christ and when Christ was crucified, remember the whole ground shook, the rocks were split, those are two cataclysmic events. But the primary cataclysmic event is Christ. He brought his kingdom. He died for his people, right? And so the prophecies about the second temple were so, uh, were to, were to so uh, 
encourage the people, but also to look beyond that. And so it's almost as though God purposely has the second temple paling in significance so that they would look forward to a new covenant temple. You following my logic here? They, 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 this, these exiles, they saw the second temple paling in comparison, and they began to wonder and question, is God going to fulfill his promises to us with something far greater? Listen to John Calvin on this. He quotes the subject of the testimony of the prophet Haggai, though he gives not the words literally, but as the prophet foretells, a future shaking of the earth and of heaven. The apostle borrows from the idea in order to teach us that the voice of the gospel not only thunders through the earth, but also penetrates the heavens. But that the prophet speaks of Christ's kingdom is beyond any dispute. Notice the confidence here. It's beyond any dispute, right? For it immediately follows the same passage, I will shake all the nations that come and that I will shake all the nations and come shall the desire of the nations and I will fill this house with glory. It is, however, certain that neither all nations have been gathered into one body except under the banner of Christ. Nor has there been any desire in which we ought to acquiesce, but Christ alone. Nor was the temple of Solomon exceeded in glory until the magnificence of Christ became known throughout the whole world. So you see his argumentation there. Christ has come on the scene. All this old covenant, all these types and shadows have been, have been fulfilled, and now Christ reigns in glory. Eventually, God would send his son to be the prophet, priest, and king, right? You got Zerubbabel. He's a governor. He's not really a king. By the way, this is, they're being ruled by the Persians. And the Persians had magnificent temples. So not only was, did the, the temple they were building pale compared to Solomon's, but they saw all of this. And, and it's almost as like he's whetting their appetite for a fulfillment that's coming. And Christ comes on the scene and fulfills all of those roles, prophet, priest, and king. But not only that, Jesus himself has told us that destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. You see, he's speaking of himself as the new covenant temple, and we as the people of God are building blocks of that temple. So considering the contrast from the old covenant to the new, which was inaugurated when Christ came on the scene, it's hard to know why the writer would suddenly contrast the old covenant with the second coming of Christ. You see that? So that's the exegetical... Um, struggle that I had yesterday and had to work late. I'm trying to reconcile this, and I'm leaning more towards this second view that it's Christ coming on the scene. It could refer to the second coming, but I think it's the idea that the writer's been building again and again. Go back to chapter 7 with me. And verse 12. Now, this is the whole argument of the Levitical Christ priesthood um, of setting aside the Levitical priesthood. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood has changed 
of necessity, there takes place a change of the law also. And so you can see this argument has just been made throughout the entire book. And so, summarize, Philip Hughes, quote, Among these things that are to be shaken are the sacrifices of the old Levitical system in and in and the impermanent order of things instituted by the mediation of Moses, which have been surpassed and superseded by the one perfect sacrifice of Christ, our great high priest. This unique sacrifice is unshakable in its efficacy and itself is the foundation of the unblemished new order that abides forever. Now, I'll just qualify. Philip Hughes was sort of saying that, the, that it was referring to the second coming, but then he concludes with this idea here. And so, um, very interesting. Verse 27, this expression yet once more denotes the removing of things which can be shaken of created things. Now, throughout this book, he, he uses the terminology, made with human hands, right? Go back to, I think, 9-11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he endured through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And so when he says here in verse 27, yet once more denotes the removing of all things that can be shaken of created things, of things that have been made. Those things are taken out of the way. They're removed. So what are the things that are permanent? Christ's priesthood will last forever. His heavenly kingdom is permanent, never to change, that heavenly city. Things that can't be shaken, the word of God abides forever. The foundation of Christ, the kingdom of God, and even our hope. And our hope will only be intensified in glory. All these blessings that are ours cannot be shaken. Salvation, the Father's tender, loving care for us. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. You have another permanent blessing, namely the love of Jesus Christ. For He is God and man. He loves you with all of His strength. And in His affectionate nature, nothing can change that. What royalty we are as the children of God. His great love set upon us. Simple application. Don't waste your life. Everything in this, this world is temporal it's going, to, it's going to be wiped out. It's going to be taken away. Invest in those things that are permanent. Invest in eternity. Get off the broad way leading to destruction. And get on the narrow way to follow Him. God alone is an unshakable refuge for the people of God. For all who trust in Him. The psalmist says, cast your burden upon the Lord. He will sustain you. And he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Well, we've looked at the importance of listening well. The believers have this unshakable kingdom. And lastly, and more briefly, let us worship him with awe. Since we are receiving a kingdom, let us show gratitude. This Notice uh, uh, verse 28, therefore, that connects it. What's the response? How are we to live? Therefore... Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. By the way, that receive is present tense. We are receiving this kingdom. 
as the new covenant people of God. We've already begun to participate in Mount Zion as we established last time that we have come to Mount Zion. We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's good news. That's good news. Jesus is enthroned in heaven even now. It's the process of receiving and will continue into the future. It's the eschatological truth of the already we possess it, but not quite fully consummated. The already and the not yet. Spurgeon said God's check is as good as gold. He's going to bring it about. And so, since we've received um, this kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us, the writer includes himself, let us show gratitude. Let us actually literally give grace, give gratitude. Let us have an an attitude of gratitude, as it were. With gratitude, think of the children of Israel. God saved them from the ten plagues. He parted parted the Red Sea, saved them from the ten plagues, delivered them over and over again. And were they filled with gratitude? No. How many times does it say they grumbled? They complained. They grumbled. We don't want to be like them. In Romans 1, it speaks of the wicked there in that total depravity section. And that one of the things they did is they failed to give thanks. Don't be like them. Show gratitude. Give gratitude. By which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. This acceptable service um, speaks of literally a carrying out of religious duties. It would be a term uh, referring to the priest of carrying out the religious duties in the temple. And and so for us, it's it's a living unto Him. In fact, the same words occur in Romans 12 and verse 1. Therefore, after Romans 1 to 11, all the wealth we have in Christ, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The same words are there. The great Scottish preacher and hymn writer Horatius Bonar says, So shall no part of day or night from sacredness be free, but all my life and every step be fellowship with thee. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Enoch. Who what? Walked with God. He walked with God. So what does this mean? Show gratitude by which we offer to God acceptable service with reverence and awe. Well, acceptable worship for sure. He's not speaking of a worship service per se here. But acceptable worship is part of that. It's every aspect of our life being devoted to God. It's not being a Sunday Christian and living the other way for Monday through Saturday. It's serving God in your vocation, whatever your jobs are, right? You do all to the glory of God. It's serving God in your family, fulfilling your roles, husbands and wives and children, fulfilling your role and how that functions. It's serving God by loving others. In fact, in 13.16, in the next chapter, do not neglect to do good and sharing with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And so, anything we do for God, a prayer, 
a cup of water in the name of Christ, right? <laughs> Remember, Jesus says that even that will have its reward, uh, helping and serving, serving in the church, using your spiritual gifts, all of the holy dignity and princely priest that we are. We, we are serving the King of Kings, but, but we are royal because we're children of the King. He's worthy of our service. And then with reverence and awe, as Calvin says, he intimates that, through, that though he requires us to serve with the promptitude and delight, there is yet no service approved by him except it be united with humility and reverence. You see, you can't serve God and be filled with pride at the same time. We've we got to put off those kinds of things. We've we got to put off the flesh and laziness and sloth that keeps us from doing what we know God wants us to do. We've got to mortify laziness, which is the great sin of the 21st century. All self-righteous, all self-esteem must be renounced. Our worship must be God-centered to the three persons of the Holy Trinity. We must remember that really we're insignificant. We're expendable, right? We can be here today, gone tomorrow. Christ is going to build His church with or without you. And so we need to remember that we are expendable. And then, our God is a consuming fire. Notice the word for. Oh, why should we offer up acceptable service with reverence and awe? Because our God is a consuming fire. That's the reason for this. Those who refuse to listen to God speaking will find God to be a consuming fire. Remember Leviticus chapter 10? Aaron's sons decided that they would mix up the sacrifice a little, kind of add a little of this, a little bit of that, and, and, and Nadab and Abihu, and they were destroyed. You think of Uzzah in the books of 1 Samuel. You think of uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. You know, our God is a consuming fire. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. John Calvin again, last quote, as he has before kindly set before us the grace of God, he now makes known his severity. Thus, we see that God omits nothing by which he may draw us to himself. He begins indeed with love and kindness, so that we may follow him all the more willingly. But when we go astray, he terrifies us. Our God is a consuming fire, which comes from Deuteronomy 4, by the way, which is related to the Mount Sinai uh, passage. Um, which says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. Well, a couple points of application. And the first is this. Thank God that Jesus Christ endured the fire of God's judgment for you if you're a Christian. If you're here today and you're trusting Christ, thank Him. Show gratitude. He's taken the God's judgment upon Himself as terrifying as Mount Sinai was, and, and just dis, a display of God's hatred against sin, all that quaking and pyrotechnic show and lightning and fire and all of that coming from the mountain. It displayed that God is holy and He will not tolerate sin. But then there's another mountain, Golgotha, Mount Calvary. Because there is His sinless Son receiving the punishment 
that you and I deserved upon himself. To the point to where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out that, that cry of dereliction. The, the, it, it was enduring God's wrath that we deserved in his own body. You know, it's said that when there's a prairie fire, these grass fires, tall grass, it, it spreads so quick and it, it goes so fast that you should never try to outrun the fire. Where's the safest place to be? Where the fire has already burned. And so too with Christ. The safest place to stand is in Christ because He's already paid for all of our, our sins. He suffered the punishment that we deserved. And so not trying to outrun the fire, fretting with your suitcases of good works, trying to earn God's favor. No. Rest in Christ. Go where the fire has already burnt. And so, in a real sense, the fear of God, having a healthy fear of God, right? A balance of reverence and awe. A healthy fear is a weapon because it causes us to walk in integrity. The warning that we not drift away, but stay on the straight and narrow. Having a healthy fear of God. Secondly, God is able to shake things up. This morning was a great example. As I was going over my notes at 9.46 a.m. And felt a nice little rumble under the ground. Kind of like that. And then the quake. When the grandfather clock on the second floor, when the chimes start to bang, we know that that's an earthquake. And... <laughs> So a vivid reminder, but God is able to shake things up. Actually, earthquakes and typhoons and hurricanes and storms and all of these things, you know, God is able to bring. You know, when you get off of a long flight, I think 16 hours, the longest flight that I had from India uh, to San Francisco, and 16 hours in the air, and you kind of like get back on the ground and it feels good. <laughs> I'm glad I'm on the, on the ground, but even that ground is not solid ground. Earthquakes remind us that we can't even trust the ground beneath our feet. And so, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're trusting in something, but it's temporary. It's going to be wiped out. Our cry has to be, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So, if you're outside of Christ, today is a day of salvation. Why wait? Run to Christ. He will not reject you. He will not turn you away. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The very words of Christ. Do not refuse Him who says, come to me. Don't refuse Him. Don't, don't plug your ears. It's a folly to think that there's some other way of salvation apart from trusting in the finished work of Christ. Jesus is the only way of salvation, but you must repent. Confess your sins. Come to Him. And come in His spiritual embrace. Welcome home. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Even passages like this that are difficult and lengthy to study and to wrestle with and strong warnings such as we just read. But Lord, we thank You that a fear of God is a weapon. It's a tool, as it were, to prompt us to live a life that glorifies You. To render acceptable service to You in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.